Hello, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to the July Atoms podcast. This month's issue is very strong on global health, endocrinology and infectious disease. None of the excellent papers I describe are difficult conceptually, all are practical and each rewarded reading. I know you'll enjoy these too. So let's move to my choices. New WHO initiatives. Last month, after both extensive and intensive consultations, the WHO released a new set of standards aimed at improving child and adolescent health. These are centred on eight key areas, and though clinical aspects form one spoke, they take us a step beyond standard practice guidance in that central tenets are child and parent appropriateness, quality improvement, and the psychological and environmental aspects of illness. Like the Millennium and Sustainable Development Goals, each area has targets with which to guide local and national progress, and Trevor Duke's editorial helps place these important new standards in perspective. So we urge anyone involved in the implementation of these standards in low and middle income countries to share their experience, this important new initiative, and write to us. This issue also sees an important study by Sander Kabatu and colleagues from the Solomon Islands in which, in the light of new WHO recommendations, they initiated the audit of all neonatal and child deaths in early 2017. The process is philosophically identical to that in the UK, with a confidential, no-blame approach. Many of the potentially modifiable issues such as communication and prior non-engagement with health services will be familiar, and context-specific ones, such as the lack of access to boats to travel to the nearest secondary care, Sure, extraordinary work is undertaken already in this setting. Gender dysphoria. Though there's widespread awareness of the issues around it, few, certainly general paediatricians, feel equipped to help the troubled adolescents who presents with a gender dysphoria. This makes a comprehensive review of the area, age-appropriate interventions and analysis of their own work in London and Leeds by Gary Butler and colleagues even more welcome. This really is a paper that rewards reading, reflection and rereading. It's now augmented by a podcast based on the paper and is my editor's choice for the month. Continuing along the endocrine theme, I can't be alone in having been lulled into thinking through standard physiology texts that treating thyrotoxicosis is straightforward. Don't you just block hormone production and wait for overstimulation to settle? This, of course, is a misconception, and a course of antithyroid drug treatment usually not the single solution we expect and want it to be. Graves' disease, defined by anti-TSH receptor antibody, is a very different beast to the relatively avuncular post-viral Hashimoto's, characterized by thyroid peroxidase antibodies. The two are often confused, and as Tim Cheatham's editorial on the paper by Kurini et al., shows the importance of early differentiation, giving the side effects of medical therapy and remission rates of only 20% in real graves on drug treatment. Defervescence in a young child. Despite decades of research and interrogation of promising biomarkers, there are still areas of grey in the approach to the young febrile child. The key, of course, is not to miss invasive bacterial infection, IBI, and though many would feel reassured by defervescence before presentation, the results of a large series from Mintengi et al. in northern Spain cast some doubt on this aphorism. The authors examined 2,470 babies less than three months old who had an axillary or rectal temperature greater than 38 degrees at home. 
Of these, 678 were afebrile by the time of presentation, and approximately 1,700 still febrile. Though there were no cases of meningitis in the afebrile group, the prevalence of invasive bacterial infection was exactly the same, 2.4% in each group. To further complicate interpretation, the vast majority of the babies with and without invasive infection appeared well, and they conclude that defervescence and reassuring appearance cannot exclude bacteremia. Pneumococcal disease and sickle cell disease. First, the positives. Since screening for sickle cell disease was introduced to the UK programme in 2006, almost all affected children had been identified neonatally. In conjunction with the introduction of the 13-valent pneumococcal vaccine, Prevnar 13, in 2010, the rates of invasive disease have plummeted from the jaw-dropping 600-fold relative risk in the antecedent era. However, as Ware's editorial on Iligbu's paper show, there's still some way to go. In a four-year analysis in the immediate post-enhanced Prevnar era, the relative risk of invasive disease is still 49 in children with sickle cell compared to unaffected controls. Though most cases were due to non-vaccine-covered serotypes, particularly 15, all were caused by penicillin-sensitive organisms. It is well known that adherence to penicillin prophylaxis is variable, and our duty, even more so in the light of these findings, to reinforce the compliance to parents of children with sickle cell. For more on these papers and others, of course, please visit our website on adc.bmj.com.